in the modern era of having interaction with ads be way less than 1%, way less than a half of 1%, you know, those first ads, the people that I interviewed said we were getting 90% click-through rates, 90% interactions. Over and over again, all of the various people said we were getting insane ROI and interaction from the audience because no one had seen ads before. San Francisco, 1994. An early version of the internet is buzzing with message boards, internet relay chats, and, well, porn. Porn aside, it's a mostly wholesome, largely user-contributed place for nerds to gather and have their nerd conversations without interruption or intrusion. Businesses are still on the sidelines, trying to figure out if there's any way to make money from this strange new world. Of course, that's all about to change. From Meta, this is Connected, the show that dives into marketing's past and explores its future. I'm your host for the series, Dan Monheit, co-founder of creative agency Hardhat and co-host of the consumer psychology podcast, Bad Decisions. When we started Hardhat back in 2005, we were riding the wave of the digital revolution, creating innovative client solutions like emails, websites, flash games, and of course, social media treasure hunts. We've all come a long way since then, thankfully. And in this series, I'll be indulging in some nostalgia and channeling my fascination for marketing and consumer behavior to understand the evolving internet landscape. If you've used a web browser sometime between 1994 and now, you've seen banner ads. But where did they come from? The very first banner ads ran on Wired Magazine's affiliate, Hotwired, way back in 1994. Ads from 12 different brands were published simultaneously, including AT&T, Volvo, Club Med, Sprint, and IBM. Let's dive in and find out what it was like from the guy who knows better than anyone, internet historian Brian McCullough, author of How the Internet Happened. The funny thing about the internet is that it existed since 1969. So if you take a look at the calendar from 1969 to 1989-ish, when the web starts to come to life, it's existed for a long time, but it wasn't designed for you and me. It wasn't designed for normies. It was designed for academics, for the military, for corporations. It was designed to be a tool for people that were more sophisticated. And what happened with Tim Berners-Lee and the World Wide Web is the World Wide Web is essentially a graphical user interface or a GUI that comes on top of the internet and makes it palatable to normal people. It wasn't until 1993 or 1994 that you could even do anything commercial on the internet. The internet was run by the Department of Defense. Yep, that's right. Today's internet, filled with cat gifs and niche sneaker websites, actually started life as an intelligence tool for the military. So you couldn't transact commerce. You couldn't have advertising. Now, people did it. You know, there were people that asked for money for a link to a certain email address. But the idea that the internet was going to be a commercial thing happened very late, around 93, 94, and around the time where the web was starting to take off. And so... 
the first advertising was essentially just like, you know, hey, I'm going to link to you or your website and throw me 30 bucks or whatever. There was no tracking. There was no sophistication in terms of how this technology worked. There were no ad servers. There's no analytics. There's no ability to understand like how many clicks came through. So what happens as the web is starting to become a thing that is moving beyond academia, moving beyond what the government assumed it would be, which would be for this priesthood of folks that were, you know, sophisticated computer users, there's Wired Magazine. Wired Magazine is a success story of the early 90s where they're talking about technology as the future. Technology is going to transform all our lives. That seems really mundane and obvious right now, except for the fact that in 1991 and 92, when Wired Magazine starts, this is sort of like a revolutionary idea in the same way that like rock and roll was a revolutionary idea at some point. And People at Wired understood that, by the way, we're covering and we're reporting on a revolution. And so we also should be a part of that revolution. So very early on, Wired decided that it needed to have a website. These folks had to buy servers, put them under their desks, and then hire people to hard code what a website would actually be. No one knows what a website is or should be. No one knows what a publication on the web is or should be. And so they hire kids. You know, this is true of any technology revolution. You hire young folks that hopefully understand what the revolution is. And Wired Magazine hires these kids to hard code their website by hand. So again, you don't go to AWS and plug and play use a CMS or templates or things like that. They're literally designing the web pages by hand. So what's crazy is these guys are literally handcrafting a news website, which is something that any of us could spin up in less than 10 minutes today with the right plugins. I mean, these guys literally are like the right brothers of the internet. They're in the South of Market neighborhood of San Francisco, and they have all these kids code up what is a website to deliver news. Does anyone know what that means? No one does. All they have is the template of essentially the real world, of meat space, of print media. So when you have people that say, we're going to put Wired on the web, well, we already have Wired Magazine, and we are going to then replicate that on this new World Wide Web and Internet, they talked a lot about the idea that you would have an issue that people could then download and print up on their printers and then read it on paper. So when they do this, the folks at Wired decide also that obviously this is an experiment that we want to run. Wired is a very, very successful magazine at the time, a very successful media entity. And they decide this is an experiment, but we also aren't going to throw money away at this. We want this to be a profitable experiment. So also we want to have ads. Now, I love how different this approach is to today's tech startups, where raising millions of dollars based on an idea is often just par for the course. Now, again, no one's ever done this. What do they have to look to as best practices? What are the templates? Like, one of the things about the early websites are these are CRT screens, so they're not flat screens. So the first banner ads that they come up with are designed to be small, to fit these small screens. 
They're also designed to be black and white. They're also designed for, again, we're used to this sort of mobile internet era where you scroll to infinity. But again, you have a page screen and you're used to having a magazine or a newspaper where you turn the page. So the idea of a banner ad at the top and the idea of a page impression, they drew this all from the only thing that they knew, which was traditional physical media and things like magazines and newspapers. So these are ads that are in or around the content of whatever Hotwired is creating. You can click on that. Now, again, a magazine, you can't click on an ad. Even a, a TV ad, you can't click on it. This is the first interactive ad. So they don't know what that means. So if you click on an ad, what should that do? So the folks at Hotwired that designed all these ads not only had to design all the ads and figure out what would be amenable to people in these first websites, they also had to figure out, well, if people click on this ad, which will be a deliverable to our advertisers, which will be the first time that we can be like, hey, not only did someone see your ad, they also acted on it. When they act on it, what does it do? Think of how crazy that is. So then the folks that created these ads also had to go to the brand advertisers and help them create websites that when you clicked on the ad, you as a consumer, as a reader, would have something to do. And so this is the birth of, it's not just an impression. It's not just as an advertiser, I've got an eyeball, I've got somebody that has noticed what I have to say. Also, they have interacted with it and they want to do more. So that's the birth right there of modern advertising as I understand it. And boom, with that, history is made. The web as we know it is born and advertising establishes itself as the unheralded funder of much of the innovation that will change all of our lives. For years, these ads remain largely unchanged. Skinny rectangular graphics at the top of a website, sometimes a dodgy animated GIF, or later, the ill-fated flash banner. They weren't personalized, they weren't influenced by a browsing history. Brands really were taking a gamble on where they thought their audience was and hoped to impress them with their 468 by 60 pixels of real estate. Every user's experience was more or less the same. As strategies went, banner ads were a digital evolution of billboards with limited scope to narrow focus or target specific user groups. Side note, that beautiful ratio of 468 by 60 is still one of the highest performing ad sizes on the web. So, how did it evolve? Here's Gay Leroy, one of Australia's earliest digital strategists and current CEO of IAB Australia, which sets the standards for digital media and advertising. I think the first um, ad report that I did in my very first consulting job was, I'm thinking it was $9 million for the market for the year. So that was sort of late, late 90s. We were excited by that amount at the time. Um, and now we're over $14 billion a year. I do remember dealing with a lot of early digital sales departments and I guess it's a little bit like NFTs or something today. So in a way it was like selling something that a lot of clients really couldn't understand. It felt like it wasn't physical, it wasn't real. Um, so there was a lot of, I guess, need for very strong, convincive salespeople to really um, get people to buy into the vision. Uh, particularly without any necessarily metrics or data behind what people were buying. The very early days of advertising, I guess in the Australian market, but generally was very much driven from a classic print display model. 
you know, and that's where the original banners came from, a picture on a page that was valued by size, really. And then as we started to get a little bit cleverer in terms of coding, etc., you know, you can blame the internet for those very early annoying flashing ads, jumping ads. There was this early ad that was for a flea treatment, dog flea treatment, that I still remember. Like it was a brand that I'd never heard of. And it was, I guess it was a clever ad. It was like fleas jumping across the banner. So it was quite distractive um, in an early way. But it was everywhere because there were probably only about 10 digital advertisers in the very early days. So it really stood out. It's, I guess it's a product that at that point I had no dog, no interest in animals, definitely not interest in flea powder. So, you know, from a targeting point of view, they were, it was way off mark, but it was definitely mass targeting by environment at that point. And it was really the brave clients and brave agencies. You know, there were some early agencies who really pushed their clients towards taking a risk. So there was a lot of early experimentation across all websites in trying to provide some sort of bundle that you wouldn't exactly know how it was going to go. So, yeah, it's basically all just guessing. What I love is that these early pioneers didn't realize that they were creating standards that would still be in our job descriptions and our media spec sheets 30 years later. Making banners was a guess, linking them to other websites was a total gamble, and no one knew what to charge for any of it. There were no algorithms to do any of the number crunching for us, just trailblazers trying to work it out as they went along. Which of course is nothing like how we run today. Anyway, how did we move past this static, generic experience? One word. Cookies. Cookies started when a special working group within the Internet Engineering Task Force, IETF, was formed. Okay, okay, okay. Long story short. Decades before weed became legal in California, Netscape... Ah, Netscape. Netscape employee Lou Montulli coined the term magic cookies to describe these small bits of code that could see which websites you were visiting and feed that information back to marketers so they could better target their ads. That was in 1994 too. About a year, shall we say? Let's not. Third-party cookies allowed advertisers to do something they'd never been able to do in the history of media. See where their audiences were going and what they were doing. For the very first time, they could narrow their advertising almost to the precise person who wanted to see it. They couldn't have known it then, but this was the beginning of the personalization that is so familiar to us today. Early third-party cookies are like the great-great-grandfather of your Netflix recommendations and the order of your Instagram feed. No more misguided flea ads. As consumers, suddenly, the ads we saw felt like they were actually meant for us. And in a way, we kind of wanted them. And, as Gay explains, they added fuel to the smouldering internet ad spend fire. Cookies gave a bit of a proxy for reach, which in turn gave a proxy for frequency. And that really helped the advertising industry grow because they were metrics that were familiar to other channels. So it was, it was the same language. So cookies was sort of the base of all of that. They also obviously allowed then targeting from an advertising point of view, as well as understanding the frequency, managing the frequency, so you don't get the same ad a billion times. Now, cookies get a bad rap, but back then they were pretty rudimentary. Advertisers got better ad spend, we got a better internet experience, and everyone was happy, at least for a while. Advertisers did battle for our attention and our disposable income. As marketers used these fragments of data to deliver what we already knew we wanted, good intentions often resulted in some pretty infuriating user outcomes. Those sneakers you were just looking at? Now they are everywhere you look online. Which is great, except that you already bought them. Only six years after web ads were born, the internet had gone from being a group of kids hand-coding a website to front-page news. 
We'd lived through Y2K and were staring down the dot-com bust. By the end of 2000, global internet ad spend had grown to 2.2 billion US dollars per quarter. Everywhere we turned, an ad seemed to follow us. There were ads for diets and gambling and fertility treatments and hair loss. It wasn't long before the internet felt more ad than anything else. We knew what was happening. We'd come to realize that the ads didn't really understand us. They were just aggregating data and using algorithms to try and look like they did. Yes, we wanted a personalized experience, but all of a sudden we were swamped by more clutter than we could ever click on. In 2006, the race to grab attention online reached a baffling climax in a project called the Million Dollar Homepage, the brainchild of 29-year-old Alex Chu. Now, the idea was simple enough. Sell a million pixels of advertising space for $1 a pixel, pay off student debt, ride off into the sunset, and live happily ever after. This guy, Alex Chu, by the way, now the CEO of Calm, a massively successful meditation app. Anyway, the Million Dollar Homepage was a huge success too. He sold every single pixel, even inflating the prices of a few of them. It was garish, it was bold, it was horrifically ugly, but it worked. Even today, the website lives on as a kind of casino energy shrine of dead links, ancient logos, and web nostalgia. If you look closely enough, you can see some huge names are still on there with early old school logos like eBay, Yahoo, and The Times. As you might expect, there are even ads on there to buy more, cheaper pixels from copycat websites. At the same time, the internet was in the midst of a massive personality change. A new era was coming. Facebook and Google were a couple of years old, and they were creating new habits and giving people new ways of connecting, at first to each other, and then, by extension, to businesses. As people started finding more utility online, businesses saw more and more reasons to follow that shifting attention and start to concentrate their efforts on making their online ads even better. They soon realized that online marketing offered a lot more opportunity to create deeper connections to their audiences, but only if they could revolutionize the delivery, the relevance, and the profitability of digital advertising. That same year, 2006, Facebook started accepting advertising. It offered new possibilities for advertisers as their audiences were already engaged on this platform and openly sharing their interests and habits, poking their friends, and playing Farmville. Around the same time, advertisers also began looking at native advertising, the idea that ads should fit and reflect the content of the platform and provide relevant value. In other words, there was value in ads for everyone, not just the advertiser. I'm Ian Stone. I head up the product marketing team for Meta in the ANZ market. Social media platforms and profiles kind of became your presence online. Um, you know, it kind of became the way that you connected with people, interests, whether musicians, sport teams, businesses, wherever it is. Um, and with that, people took great pride in that and they looked to build up their profiles on these platforms um, as if it was a reflection of their kind of identity online. With this came a lot of data that was volunteered, right? So demographic data, interest data, uh, anything that helped build out the connection into friends and discovery of the things that matter to them flowed quite intuitively as people went further, I suppose, into understanding what social apps brought to them in terms of the value. Now, Facebook wasn't the first social media platform. Who could forget Friendster, MySpace, High Five, Six Degrees, and of course, LinkedIn, which launched way back in 2003. But it was the first one that really brought diverse communities from all around the world together and did it at scale. We came for our friends and we stayed for the opportunity to explore our interests with new people. 
And for advertisers, this provided a huge unlock. Those who found early success did so by getting to understand what their customers really cared about and then tailored their messaging accordingly. I think it certainly grew a connection, which is one of the key words over the last 10 years. And that can be connection into communities, whether it be local buy and sell groups or local football teams or soccer teams or whatever it might be. In growing what's happening in your own backyard, it could be interest groups um, and it could just be existing friends and connections that you haven't had previously or maybe have lost a bit of contact with over the years a lot of connections were kind of rekindled so there was a bit of a voyage of discovery i suppose into this and as social media grew in terms of its presence more businesses more organizations and more communities also started imposing their presence upon social media which again started fueling that development and that discovery of how you can connect into the things that matter to you consumers want ease and they want to connect with things that they're interested in. So there was definitely a fair bit of data exchange within social platforms based on hobbies or different things that they're interested in and building up that profile of a person to give a better experience, better experience online and just recommendations as well. So that definitely developed and created, from a marketer's point of view, opportunities to really hone in on those the most effective cohort. So again, it might not be the people who already buy your soft drink, but pulling together a picture of profiles of segments that make sense to start talking to really improve that consumer experience. It took a little while, but more and more advertisers cottoned onto the idea of tailoring content for these online platforms, going past interruptive experiences and towards ones which added value for their prospective audiences. You started getting a very personalised feed and the experience of going to social sites became a very personal experience. For advertisers, this is great because there's, there's probably more data that have been on available before to make sure you're reaching the right eyeballs and you're targeting in a much more efficient way and a much more sophisticated way. But there's also then a need for advertisers and, and platforms to make sure the advertising being delivered fits in with that personalised environment. What we've seen over the last 20 odd years of the business growing is that personalized ads and relevant ads are very important, not just for business results, not just for the importance of the advert itself, but also the enjoyment of being on the platform as well. Like you don't want just a load of unrelated ads being thrown at you. So consumers do want, we've seen this time and time again, a personalized ad experience. But what's changed dramatically over the last few years is consumers want and expect a greater level of control and a greater level of visibility on how their data has actually powered this personalization ad to come to them. If they're giving up any data, they want to know where it's going, why it's going there. If they're seeing an ad, how did you know to serve me that ad? People want transparency and answers to these questions more and more without giving up that personalized ad experience. For the past few years, third-party data has delivered consumers a whole new advertising experience. We've come a long way from better targeted banners. As people spend more time with these platforms, they want to know more about them and understand them better. These days, they're rightly asking questions about the data that's out there about them and how it's being used. Remember those kids who were building websites in 1994? Today, they're the CEOs and CFOs. They've grown up on the internet, and now it's core business. Brands don't just have digital departments anymore. Digital is ubiquitous. We're always online. We don't log on. It powers everything we do, from QR code check-ins to visiting the doctor. The internet has come of age, and now everyone... Consumers, governments, brands will have to work together to build the next iteration. The internet was sort of hobbled together, built on sand by teenagers in a San Francisco garage. It's time to discard that legacy guesswork and take a deliberate step into the internet 3.0. Consumers are the internet's missing link.
Without their buy-in, everything falls in a heap. So with all of their new understanding, what do they really want? I guess there's pros and cons to it. If a, a targeting was accurate, I guess it's good. If I'm looking up golf clubs, then you know I like golf clubs. You don't need to know what age I am. It doesn't matter. So here we stand, at the starting blocks of a race to get Internet 3.0 up and running. The promised land is more targeted and personalised advertising, whilst being less interruptive and less invasive. You know how to do that, yeah? I mean, I know, I know, I just didn't know if you knew. Join us in our next episode, as we look at what we need to take with us from where we are, and what's best left in the past. Big thanks to internet historian Brian McCullough, the IAB's Gayla Roy, and Meta's Ian Stone for speaking to us for this episode. Make sure you subscribe or follow to get part two of this story and all of our future episodes. Connected is a Clearhaze Consulting production for Meta ANZ. It's executive produced by Meta's Georgina Gellert and Alexandra Sloan and produced by Alex Hayes, Janelle Lawrence and Sophie Woods. Episodes are written by Anna Spargo-Ryan with music, sound design and editing by Adrian Breakspear and production support from Akansha Singh, Courtney Devereaux and Leah Young. I'm Dan Monheit, and until next time, this is Connected from Meta.